0: Thank you for subscribing to the Shepherd's Church podcast. This is our Lord's Day sermon. We pray that as we declare the word of God, that you would be encouraged, strengthened in your faith, and that you would catch a greater vision of who Christ is. May you be blessed in the hearing of God's word and may the Lord be with you. Two words you normally don't hear together is transparency and government. Or trust in government, or joy in government. And yet, government is critical to the health of any organization. Government is absolutely critical. And something that I didn't write this down, but I was thinking about it before I walked up, is that knowing something about the government is actually quite healthy. So for instance, today we're going to pull back the veil a little bit. We're going to lift the hood a little bit of the shepherd's church and how the shepherd's church is governed. And that's healthy. And that's good. I remember as a kid, my grandpa taught me how to mow the yard. And he opened up the hood and he showed me all these fascinating parts that I have no idea what they were. And as a result, I ended up breaking the lawnmower multiple times because I didn't understand the machine. My grandpa never broke the lawnmower because he understood what it was for. I think when we pull back the curtain, when we open up the hood, when we look at the government of a healthy church, it's healthy for all of us. It lets you know how the church is to be governed according to Scripture, but it also, it allows us to be able to share with you how things run in a faithful church. Now, like I said, healthy government is critical to the health of any organization, You can think of a club, a city, a business, a nation, a corporation, whatever you want to look at. If it has a healthy government structure, then it will be healthy. And if it doesn't, then it will become sick and invalid and it will die. You think about it. This is all this is true all throughout the general revelation, not just in Scripture. You think about the animal world. Animals have a sort of system of government as well. That's why wolves have packs and alpha male leaders. That's why bees have queens and and very highly designated jobs. That's why female robins build nests while the male robin's out grabbing worms. There's government embedded in the natural world. There's order. There's structure. So much so that we can't avoid it. You look at the cell. The cell is a fascinating thing. It has a nucleus, an epicenter, where it issues commands to the cell. That's like sort of like its central headquarters. Everything is built with this sort of order. And if that order is healthy, then the organization, the business, the city, the nation, whatever you want to say, will also in turn be healthy. Now, the reason that we're covering this topic today is not because we pre-planned this according to the election. It honestly just fell naturally. I love how God does that. But we're talking about this because every church has a government. Whether a church wants to have a government or not, that doesn't matter. Every church will have a way that it organizes itself, a way that it does things. And the question that we need to wrestle with is, is that biblical? If every church is going to have a government, if every church is going to have a structure, is their structure biblical? Can it be found in the Bible? And I think it's a topic that we have to look at. If we're going to be a biblical church, if we're going to be a true church, we have to look at What is a true church government? Now, in the history of the church, I can't cover this to any great extent, but in the history of the church, there's basically been three styles of church government that a church can fall into. There's congregational, there's Episcopal, and there's Presbyterian. Now, it makes matters even more confusing confusing because we have churches today that are called congregational churches, churches that are called Episcopalian churches, and churches that are called Presbyterian churches Those are not necessarily the same thing. I'm talking about a government style. So, for instance, a congregational style of church government is what you think it's ruled by the people, where they have elections for committee members and secret ballots for carpet color (laughs) and such important matters as that. These kinds of churches show up in the Western world primarily among democratic thinking people, people who've been used to democracy. In fact, they gain a lot of what they are from John Locke and his democratic theory, even more so than scripture. The Bible actually does not give warrant for a congregational style of government. The The Bible does not say that we all get together and we have secret ballots, that we all get together and have elections. The Bible is a book written by a king to his subjects, not a politician to an electorate. The Bible is a monarchical book. The Bible is not democratic. Our faith is not democratic. If you think about it, if you want to have a law change, you appeal to the the legislator or you you vote him out. You can't vote out God. And you can't change his standard. He says what is and we obey. He didn't ask our opinion. So a government that emphasizes that, a church government that emphasizes democracy, I think, is out of step with the Bible. We can't comport our Americanism into the church. I know it feels like we've existed for a really long time, but before 1776, the church still existed for 1700 years prior. This idea of government by the people for the people can't be found in scripture. So we throw that out. Now, there are churches like some Baptist churches, congregational churches, some non-denominational churches that adopt that model. But I would argue that they do so on the basis of what they see in culture, not what they see in Scripture. Because there is no text that I could point to you that gives this sort of model. The second kind of government that that has been throughout church history goes all the way back to the very beginning. And it's called the Episcopal form of government. Now, the Episcopal form of government is where a bishop is in charge of multiple churches in a region. That bishop reports to an archbishop. And then if you're in the Catholic model, those archbishops report to cardinals who report to popes. And the further up you go, you realize that this is actually not a biblical model either. Now, I will say that it's more biblical than the congregational model because at least the word episcopal comes from the scripture. It comes from the Greek word episkopos, which means overseer or ruler. There's actually two words that the English translations normally translate as elder. It's episkopos is one of them, presbyteros is the other. So the Episcopal church takes this word and says, this is a ruling function where all the local churches report to a bishop who reports to archbishops who report to, in the Catholic church, a pope, which, again, cannot be substantiated in Scripture. Now, there's non-Catholic churches that follow this model. You think of that some Methodist churches, Lutheran churches, Episcopalian churches. It would be really strange if the Episcopals didn't follow the Episcopal model. They do. There's also Reformed churches that follow this model. Not all Reformed churches are Presbyterian. There are Reformed Anglican churches that are very faithful to the Scriptures and who adopt this model. One of my favorite uh, guys in history that I love to read, J.C. Ryle, was a bishop in the Anglican church. So I'm not saying that this one is, is awful. I'm just saying that I don't think it's the most biblical model for church government. What I would argue is the most biblical model for church government is the Presbyterian model. Now, we are a Presbyterian church. And they're actually, believe it or not, this makes it even more confusing, there are Baptist churches that are Presbyterian churches. And you're like, how can that be? Because they're organized according to a Presbyterian form of government, even if they don't accept every Presbyterian doctrine. So what I'd like to do today is I'd like to talk about this Presbyterian model, which is ruled, the local church is ruled by elders. Those elders are elected by the congregation and ordained by the elders, and they serve the local church. They report to a group of people called a presbytery, which we won't actually have time to get into that, But I want us to look at a healthy church model that is ruled by elders and deacons for the good and the benefit of the local church. So we're going to cite scripture in that. We're going to examine things in that. And with that, let us pray. And we will get started this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have not made the government of your church a mystery to us. Thank you that every topic that we can look at, that there, is, that there is clear scripture where we can say, that is what God desires. Lord, we thank you that your scripture can be known, that we can read it. Lord, I thank you so much that, that even down to what kind of government a church ought to have, that you have spoken about it. And Lord, let that encourage us that in every aspect of our lives, you have spoken. And you have given us Either clear teaching or clear implications of what it is that you would have us to do. Lord, I pray for this church. I pray that as we continue to serve you, Lord, I pray that you would keep us faithful. Lord, I pray that you would keep us focused on Christ and his gospel. Lord, I pray that you would never allow us to be obsessed with our own traditions and our own distinctives. Lord, let us be obsessed with Christ. His gospel and declaring it to the nations. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. When you're talking about church government, you have to begin at the beginning. I know that sounds strange, but you have to. The Bible paints a glorious picture of how to begin at the beginning. It begins with a God who has infinite authority and he creates the world by the word of his mouth. And then we see Satan who is sabotaging that authority. God installed Adam and Eve to be his vice regents in the garden. He installed them to take his authority and extend it to the ends of the earth. And yet Satan comes in and dupes Adam and causes him to exchange his crown for shackles, his throne for subjugation. But the story does not end there. You see, in Isaiah, 700 years before the New Testament, God is giving his answer to the fall of man. And the fall of man affected many things. It affected the male-female dynamic. It affected our relationship vertically with God, but it also affected the way that we organize ourselves in government. So what is God going to do? He's going to bring redemption to every single aspect that has fallen. And in Christ, he's going to restore the government of God. Look at what it says in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. Christmas passage, we're very familiar with this. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Now, in that passage, there's a lot of phrases that stick out to us. A child will be born. You go to a Christmas card store, especially Christian ones, in a Christian bookstore. A child to us is born right there on the cover. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. How can we talk about that the government is going to rest on his shoulders? The government is in between the son is born and wonderful counselor. This idea that the rule of God is going to be restored under the son of God is beautiful. And for, in the forefront of Isaiah chapter 9, what this means is when Christ came, the rule of God came back to the earth. Now, many Christians will say, we don't live in a theocracy. Oh, yes, we do. <laughs> if God's rule is on the earth and the government rests on his shoulders and his, the increase of his government will not end, my dear friends, we live in a theocracy. We live in the rule of the Son of God. We do not belong primarily to democracies. Our identity has not been written and defined by the constitution or by federalism or by bureauc- or bureaucracies or tyrannies or anything of that nature. Our americanism is has to bow the knee to our christianity in that we live under the government of Christ. First and foremost and primarily, our identity as a Subject of the king, not a citizen of this nation. In the end, America will die. In the end, China, Russia, North Korea will go the death of every single nation that has ever preceded it. And the kingdom of God will continue to stand. Because the increase of his kingdom will not end. Take a moment to appreciate the significance of that statement. It doesn't say the increase of wickedness will not end. It doesn't say the increase of this country will not end. It says that the incremental increase of Jesus's kingdom will not stop until, as we sang before, God's glory covers the entire earth. Why do we get so depressed as Christians? We are decades, centuries, I don't know how long, but we are waiting on Christ to com- to finish the victory that he's been promising us for 2000 years. And that alone we can hold our head up high and say that Christ will be victorious. Now when we come to questions about authority in the church, we have to begin here where Christ has all authority. Matthew 28:18 says, "This is after now Jesus has come, and after he's died on the cross, after he's resurrected from the dead, he came up and he spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, just so we're clear, Jesus wasn't mistaken on the scope. When he said all authority on earth belongs to him, that means no one on earth has authority other than him nations rulers presidents kings potentates dictators whatever you want to call them they have borrowed authority that belongs to Christ and they will be held accountable to the king of kings and the lord of lords on how they steward that authority you and i have no authority we often as americans we like to we like to put forth our individualism as this sacred thing i have a right i have a vote i have a choice that's what the entire abortion industry is built upon. My body, my choice. But if you're a Christian, you're the person who knows that you have no rights. You're the person who knows that you have no choices. You're the person who knows that you were transferred out of darkness and into life. You are the one who was dead. And now you've been made alive. If you're a member of the world and you are not saved, you don't know this is true, but You will. On the day of Christ, when the king is standing in all of his glory, you will either bow in worship or you will bow in terror because there is no authority except what belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. We can spend our life trying to amass wealth like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. We could spend our life trying to get limitless power like vladimir putin or xi Jinping. we could we could spend our life trying to amass materials and in the end realize that we were nothing more than a runaway slave who had no good master over us as christians we know we have a master who loves us as christians we know that we have a master who cares for us, who died for us, who brought us into his kingdom. But if you're in the world and that's what you're chasing after, if you have these gods before you, you will stand before the king of kings naked with nothing because you would have offended the only one with power. And what a terror that would be. That's why the Bible says that it will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, One of the most important lessons that I learned as a Christian was that I'm a slave of Christ. One of the most important things. In fact, in our Bibles, they often translate it servant. They soften it. The word is slave. Now, in biblical times, slavery existed. We live in a country where slavery existed and it was wicked. In the Bible, slavery existed and it depended on your master how things went for you. If you had a wicked and a cruel master, then you would be treated terribly and with great shame. But if you had a good master and a faithful master, you would rejoice in your servitude. How much better of a master can we have than the Lord Jesus Christ? This means, dear friends, that our opinions must be submitted to the will of our Lord. That means every aspect of your life belongs to him. That's why Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch theologian, could say, when you look out across every square inch of the cosmos, every part of it, every molecule, belongs to Jesus Christ. That means our will, our emotions, our affections, the things we own, the things we do, the people we love, every bit of it belongs to him. And it's not ours. Everything we have, we hold with an open hand because when we hold it with a closed hand, that's the picture of idolatry, that we've made something other than our master and Lord, Savior in our life. When we understand that we were bought and paid for and that he owns us, And that every decision that we make now is in light of this new Lord that we have. We've not been transferred out of slavery into libertine freedom. We've been transferred out of slavery to send to slavery to Christ. When we understand that, it gives us the greatest freedom that can ever be had. You think about a fish in the water. A fish is not free. You say, hey fish, why don't you try living on land? And they suffocate and die. Right? A fish... Is most happy when it's bound to the circumstance called water. You and I are most happy and most joyful when we are bound to the circumstance of being in relationship with this good Master Jesus Christ. We thrive there, we live there, we live and move and have our being there. To try to depart from Christ and live with closed hands and say, This is my life, my stuff. It's like a fish trying to live outside of the water. You'll suffocate. That kind of slavery to Jesus is life-giving and good. It goes even beyond that, though. Because the Bible says that Jesus owns everything, but for the church it says that he is our head, which is a fascinating thing to say. For all the world, the Bible says that Jesus will put those who hate him under his feet. But for the church, she will be connected to his head. What a beautiful picture. We're not under his feet. We're not triumphed over by the king of kings. He brought us up to him, connected us to him. That's why the Bible says that we are in Christ. What master would do that for his slaves? What master would do that for his enemies? A king goes and he conquers rebels and then he makes them his family members. That's what God has done. Ephesians one twenty two says, He has put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Brothers and sisters, you are not second-rate citizens to God. He made you a part of him. You are in union with him. He connected you to himself. While all the governors, princes, kings, prime ministers will be put under Jesus' feet if they don't bow the knee to Christ, you and I have been clothed in his radiant love. You think about what a head does for a body. It's kind of important. I can chop off a hand or lop off a leg and survive. Try chopping off your head. You won't make it too far. A head feeds your body. A head gives instructions to every cell in your body. There's nothing that happens in your body that doesn't go through the head. Think about from the, from the tiniest toe wiggle to a full-on sprint. Sprint. Every movement your body undergoes, every cellular function is controlled by your head. And think about how that relates to Christ. Every movement, every thought, every action is controlled by the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is, are we a healthy body? Are we at war with our head? Or are we submitted to the life-giving love of our head Jesus Christ. Look at what Ephesians four fifteen says. But speaking the truth in love, we grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. So headship not only means that He's connected to us, but it also means that He is feeding us and that we grow up in Him. You think about it like this: a toddler, a two year old, they have heads too. I'm just making sure we're all on the same page biologically. Their head controls their growth. My two-year-old has no choice on whether he grows into a three-year-old and eventually a six-foot-six linebacker or whatever he's going to be. <laughs> My child grows without his free will involved in the slightest because his head is executing the DNA functions that God re, that God wrote on his body And it's happening without him even thinking about it. He goes to sleep and he grows. He wakes up and he grows. Whether he likes it or not, he grows. What Christ is saying through the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 is that if we are connected to his head, we will grow. We will grow. Now, that doesn't mean we grow immediately. Like, toddlers still have the terrible twos. Teenagers still have their thing. Adults in this country still have their thing. We may waffle about in moments of immaturity, but the trajectory of our life is growth if we're connected to Jesus Christ. You are not the same person you were last year and a decade ago if you are in Christ. If there is no growth, maybe there is no connection to Christ the head because that will guarantee that you grow. Paul says in Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. He not only has connected us to him, he not only will grow us in him, but he will also transform our priorities so that he becomes first in everything, so that he eventually becomes first among the nations so that he com- becomes first in the church, so that he becomes first in your marriage, so that he becomes first in your parenting, first in your singleness, first in your work, first in your career, first in your, the things that you own, first in everything. If you're connected to Christ, try making things other than him a priority. It will not work for long because he is invested in being first in your life in everything. Why fight it? Especially when we thrive under his lordship and under his leadership. His headship guarantees that we prioritize him. Now we began here because a healthy church has to be governed by Christ. It says that Christ is the head of the church. There is no human man who is head over any church. I I know this is silly, but I do not like it when pastors say, at my church we do this, and at my church we do that, because it is not our church. It is the Lord Jesus Christ's church. I know that might be silly and it's a function of language, but I it's his church. Why do you think we named it the Shepherd's Church? Because it's not ours! Paul says in Acts 20, 28, when he's talking about now, okay, Jesus is Lord over the church, but we also need rulers, we also need leaders, we also need all of this involved. This is what he says. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. He doesn't say your flock. Be on guard for yourself, but be on guard for the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to the shepherd The church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Immediately we see in this passage that the church belongs to him. He paid for it. He purchased it. He died for it. It's his. So when we talk about the government of the church, we have to begin with Christ. Because there is no government apart from Christ. It does say that leaders are appointed by the Spirit of God. It says, among which the Holy Spirit made you overseers. This tells me that every person in church leadership must be appointed by the Spirit of Christ. They must be appointed. And we will go through how that happens because it's not abundantly clear. We don't receive a telegram from the Spirit that says, hey, pick so-and-so to be a leader in the church. So we have to be Understanding of what the Bible's saying when it says that the Spirit sets apart people for the office of elder or deacon. But that doesn't negate the fact that it says that the Holy Spirit has made them overseers. The Holy Spirit is involved in bringing up leaders into Christ's church. You think about a government. Think about England and its monarchy. They have dukes and earls and they have people who are over various little regions and sectors, but there's one king. Right? There's one king in the kingdom of God, and that is Christ. And he has installed overseers in the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. How does that happen? Well, Acts 6, 3 through 6 gives us a a good look into how this happens. It says, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles and after praying they laid their hands on them. Now, the thing we need to see here, there's a lot that we could talk about in this passage. This passage is primarily about deacons. But what I want you to see is that the Holy Spirit in Acts 14 says, I set apart these leaders, and the first evidence that the Holy Spirit set them apart is that they were full of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't set apart leaders who are empty of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't set apart leaders who are marginally in need or in being affected by the spirit no the holy spirit sets apart people who are full of the spirit full of faith full of wisdom that is a sign to the church that this particular person has the anointing of god on their life now we don't have time to get into it today but all throughout the scriptures you have you have faithful men who are full of the Spirit, being raised up into leadership. I wish we had time to go into the complementarian versus egalitarian, can women be in leadership discussion. We don't have time for that. Maybe in another sermon. I will tell you that men are in leadership in the church. If you like, we can talk more about that later. But the first thing we have to see is that a man who is raised up into leadership in the church is raised up by the Holy Spirit being poured out on him in full. So when we look around as a church and we say, does that kind of man exist in this church? A man who's full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, full of faith, that's the kind of leader that the congregation is involved in. And that's the second evidence of the Holy Spirit is that the congregation says, we want this guy in leadership. Now, we're a young church. We have two elders and we have a deacon candidate whose name is Dan. We're learning on how this works. We haven't been around the block forever. We're three years old. But it seems to me that two of the evidences that the Holy Spirit has set apart a man for the job is that he's full of the Holy Spirit and that the congregation approves of it. And not only approves of it, but they put him forward and say, this man among us, is a man that we would like to be in leadership. Two evidences that the Holy Spirit's involved. So therefore let's let's cross examine this. If he's not full of the spirit and if the congregation says, "No, nah, I don't think so," that man's not called to leadership. Both of those things have to be true. Luke says in Acts chapter 14 again, After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples and returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders from them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them in the Lord in whom they had believed. So now let's add this on top of what we saw in Acts 6. We've got men who are full of the spirit. Called by the congregation, why? So that the elders can pour into them and disciple them and ordain them. Paul actually has a, a beautiful here, seven-step model for church planting. Paul's model for church planting is you go to a city, you make disciples, you strengthen them in the gospel, you identify the men who are full of the spirit. You have the congregation put those men forward. You have the elders install and ordain them. And then Paul says, then it's time for me to leave and go and do it somewhere else. Where are we at as a church? Well, we're at the place now where we're begging the Lord to identify men who are full of the Spirit so that they can be put forward, so they can be discipled, so they can be raised up into leadership. Why? With the hope that one day, that we can go plant more churches, that we can plant churches in every town in New England even. This church is actually a pretty geographically disparate church. We have people, we used to have people on our western border in Fitchburg. We have people in Merrimack, New Hampshire. We have people on the south shore of Massachusetts, and we have people in Peabody and Danvers. We have people driving 45 minutes from all four cardinal directions. What is a way that we can help in that? Is pray that the Holy Spirit would pour out his love onto men, that those men would be raised up, installed in the office of elder and deacon, that we would have a full eldership body, a full deacon community, a full consistory, which is just a Presbyterian word for elders and deacons. And then in that, we send them out a couple of them out to plant more churches. And we do it over and over and over again until we die and we go meet Jesus. That's what we want. This area of the country is too important to give up on. So we want to do what Paul did. And our our model is coming right out of the scriptures. We see those two things that the Holy Spirit has poured out onto people. Those people are given over to the the elders. Why are they given over to the elders? There's two things that the elders are supposed to do in this process. When the Holy Spirit shows that that man is marked out for ministry, the elders, the current elders of the church do two things. Number one, they have to identify and cross-examine and evaluate that man's character. And then they have to train him in his core competencies. Both are important. An officer who's been raised up into the church must have exemplary character and they must have the competency to serve the people of God. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 2, we cannot spend a lot of time on this, gives 26 character qualifications for an elder. It is not a low bar. He gives 12 qualifications for a deacon, which doesn't mean that deacons are, are more than halfway less righteous. That's not what that means. The deacon qualifications are more overarching. The elder qualifications are more granular. Both men are called to holiness of life. For instance, the first elder trait is that the man would have a godly desire to be an elder. The first trait is that they would have an ambition to serve Jesus' church. And then after that... The elders evaluate their character. It says that they must be mature, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not fond of sordid gain, Not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, but be temperate, prudent, respectable, gentle, peaceable, free of the love of money, loving what is good, hating what is evil, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, husband of one wife who manages his household well, is a dignified parent, has obedient children, has a good reputation in the community, is above reproach and character doctrine, able to teach the word of God, and always ready to hold fast to the gospel. That's what an elder is. If he's not, we ask ourselves the question how does the Holy Spirit set apart people for service? He pours out his spirit on them. The congregation put them forward, and he goes through a process with the elders. If he is deficient in one of these character traits, the 26, and he's unwilling to repent, unwilling to grow, it doesn't mean that he's not a Christian. It doesn't mean that he won't be a great church member, but it just means he's not an elder. The Holy Spirit Again, that's the third evidence has showed us who will be called to ministry. The one who is called to ministry will not only have their entire life gone through with a fine tooth comb, but they'll be happy about it. And they'll still be willing to serve as elder at the end of it. Now, I understand we're a young church. Many people ask me, why don't we have more elders? (laughs) The scripture is why we don't have more elders yet, because I'm not willing To put forth somebody to check off a box because that's damaging to them and it's damaging to us as a church. I would rather wait on elders that are biblically qualified than to check off boxes because we think that we have an elder need. We do have an elder need, but we're not going to do it in a way that the Bible doesn't give us an option for. The Bible tells us that we have to evaluate the character of church officers. 26 character traits for elders, 12 for deacons. The second part of that evaluation process, after the character has been gone through, is that core competencies are taught to that man. For the deacon, and I'm just very overarching strokes at this point, I I can't get into specifics, but the deacon, in general, is supposed to be an expert in discipleship. He's to hold to the mystery of the faith. He's to be able to diagnose, ascertain, and come alongside of people in their financial needs, in their emotional needs, in their physical needs. Wherever poverty exists in the church, whether it's mental, spiritual, physical, or emotional, the deacon serves, and he serves to the glory of God. The elders, on the other hand, are more of the spiritual leaders of the church. They're the ones that oversee worship. They're the ones that lead in the spiritual realm. If you want to think about it, this is sort of overly reductionistic. But the deacon deals with physical poverty. And then the elder deals with spiritual poverty or spiritual discipleship, teaching. For instance, look at what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.13. This is what an elder's job description is. He's talking to Timothy, until I come... Give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to the exhortation and the teaching of the Word of God. So now we have three things on the job description of of an elder. They're to read the Scriptures publicly to the people of God. They're to teach the Scriptures publicly to the people of God. They're to exhort the people in the Scriptures to the glory of God. That means that if there is someone in the congregation who is more gifted in communication than us than the elders if there's someone who's a better guitar player than derek if there's someone who's a better singer than even me (laughs) just kidding that's everyone in the room that is not a metric for whether or not they lead worship i've been to churches all my life who the most talented musician was the worship leader the most talented speaker was the preacher. And when we do that based off talent, our metric is not scriptural. The reason that someone leads in the church is because the Holy Spirit's poured out His Spirit upon them, the congregation has acknowledged them, the elders have trained them, and the elders have ordained them. It has nothing to do with talent. In fact, if you get to know pastors, they're screwed up. <laughs> they're some of the most weird People idiosyncratic <laughs> strange loners They're weird. It is it is God in his humor, getting glory in his church, that anyone who stands up here, and especially me, could declare the truth of the word of God. I was in as a kid I was in special ed classes and I read four grades below my reading level almost until high school. I have no idea why I'm standing here talking to you. Other than God has given me a lot of grace and he's helped me in a lot of ways that were not true of me before I went into ministry. He gave me gifts that I didn't have before. He gave me memory that I didn't have before. He gave me grace that I didn't have before. So therefore, I can't boast in me. I can only boast in Christ elders are called to preach the word of God with truth and with conviction they are not called to give stories and anecdotes and marvel demonstrations about the MCU and how it applies to Christ (laughs) they are not to give watered down truisms that avoid sin and avoid obedience and are entertaining to listen to we are to cling to the scriptures as if they're our only life raft look at what Paul says 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ. It's the most terrifying verse to me as a pastor. Solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing and his kingdom. Timothy, when he read this passage, was probably like, you know what, I could probably go into computer programming instead. (laughs) This ministry thing is dangerous. Paul says all those things, and then he says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. He says something very similar in 1 Timothy 4, 6. In pointing out these things, these doctrines to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Constantly nourished on the words of faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Paul is saying that if a pastor wants to be nourished and wants to be well-fed, then he must preach God's word because it's that word he's preaching that will either nourish him, corrupt him, feed him, or leave him starving. I have to preach the word of God for my own soul as well as for the health of this church. There's other duties of an elder Again, I, I, wish we had, I wish we had multiple hours. Maybe I'm the only one, but I wish that we did. <laughs> the elder is to give the church direction on where they're supposed to go, First Peter 5.2. The elder is supposed to be a Christ-like example for the flock of God, First Peter 5.3. The elder is supposed to pray for the sick. That's why we pray for the sick in church every single week. That's James 5.14. The elder is supposed to be consumed with the ministry of word and prayer. That's Acts 6.4. The elder, the most popular aspect of an elder's life, the one that that everyone rejoices in, is that he also is the one who oversees church discipline. (laughs) Matthew 18.15-20. A faithful elder does not ask whether a thing is popular a faithful elder asks whether a thing is in the bible and if it is he must do it you know the older i get the more i feel like this the book of jeremiah and the book of lamentations really resonates with me i feel like i've woken up in a country that has gone crazy I was a small town southern boy and every, every front porch had a flag. Every relative had joined some branch of the military. I grew up and joined the army. And I look at the country that we live in now and I don't even recognize it. When I read, I'm reading Jeremiah right now in my, in my personal Bible time. And I read him say, the reason that I preach Is because it's like a fire that's down in my bones that I can't get out. He's saying, I'm not preaching for popularity. I'm not preaching because everybody wants to hear this, but I'm preaching because if I don't, woe is me. Because it's like a fire in my bones. An elder who serves for the glory of man or for the glory of himself is not a biblical elder. I've said this many times it is a burden to be an officer in the church. It is a blessing. Let me be be very clear, it is a blessing. But if you don't understand that it's a burden, you will treat it as though it's about your enjoyment, about your status, about how big your podcast is, about how important your blog is, about what conferences you're being invited to, and you will make it about you. And it's not. We see six things so far that the Holy Spirit's involved in. He sets apart the man. The congregation puts that man forward. The elders evaluate that man's character. The elders then train that man or evaluate his character. Then the elders train that man in his competencies so that the man can serve, preach, lead, encourage, read the scriptures, pray over the congregation, administer the sacraments, Minister the word and prayer and oversee church discipline. And that's just a beginning of the job description for an elder. Again, we're not going to be able to get into all the specifics of elders and deacons, but it is a heavy burden. Now I'd like to transition. Because there's a temptation in a Presbyterian church, and I mean government style, We're also Presbyterian in our doctrine, but I'm I'm just meaning government style right now. There's a temptation for everyone to look at the front and say, this is what the elders do. This is what the deacons do. What do I do? I don't do anything. That's not true. In a congregational system, everybody feels like they have a purpose. I get to vote. I went to a congregational church one time that voted down keeping the budget for discipleship $1,000 a year, and they voted it to $500 a year, but voted up the parking lot budget from $25,000 to fifty. dollars Talk about a mis, misplaced priorities. But in a congregational church, you feel like you have a say. At a congregational church, when a membership meeting happens, everybody comes. Even people you don't even know are members. People you thought had died. You're like, who are you? I was one of the founding members of this church. Have you been since it was founded? No, but it's a membership meeting today. I get my vote. In a presbyterian church though, it's not like that. We don't have 100% attendance at our membership meetings. We don't have people who who feel like this is my role, this is my job because often it feels like that it's top down in a way. That the elders do their thing, the deacons do their thing and I just receive and go home. That's not true which is why I want to highlight that in Scripture. What is the role of the congregation in a faithful church? Well, it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, one of the things that you can do to come alongside of the members as citizens in the kingdom of heaven, it says this, but we request of you, this is Paul requesting to the Thessalonian church, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you. And have charge over you in the Lord, and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work, and that you live in peace with one another. Hebrews thirteen, seventeen says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your soul as those who will have to give an account before God. Let them, let the pastors do this with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. We hate the word submission in our society. We hate the word obey. It strikes at our beautiful self-indulgence and importance, doesn't it? But Paul says the reason that we go to a church where there's healthy leaders that we are joyfully submitting to is because it profits us think about it if you're the congregation that put forward a man and then the elders raise him up and ordain them then it profits you to come under that man's leadership because he serves you he cares for you now i'm not talking about unfaithful churches where people abuse god's sheep and where people run over them or examples like at mark driscoll's church uh he's no longer a pastor but he said By the Lord's grace, there'll be a thousand people that this church runs over by the time it's over. it's sick. But if you're in a faithful church where your pastor cares for you and is praying for you and loves you, then obey the leadership. Submit to the leadership. Help your pastors have joy. If that's not the case, if you believe that that's not true here, go somewhere else where you can find that. The goal is to find a place where you have a healthy church, where you can submit under those leaders and bring joy to them, to esteem them and appreciate them, be loving to them and not a burden to them. Now, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull back the hood a little bit here and talk about things that most people won't say. But one of the most consistent problems in evangelicalism is how churches view, and treat their pastors. Now, I'm not saying that there's not doctrinal issues. There are, but these, trans, these, these go beyond doctrinal issues. This is true in Presbyterian and in Methodist. This is true in Anglican and in non-denominational. I have met a 100 pastors to one who are, who are, I mean, I've met one pastor to 100 is what I mean, who are thriving in their ministry right now. When you get to know pastors, they're broken people. They've got scars. There have been situations where people have misrepresented what they've said, where people have falsely accused them, where people have left the church because there was a gossip ring in the church who was talking about them, and your pastor bears those scars in a way that they just don't don't translate to the church. Every pastor I've talked to has had a moment in his ministry where he felt like quitting. Every pastor has had a moment in his ministry where he's on Zillow looking at properties in Wyoming. <laughs> Pastors, and this is just from my experience, so it's anecdotal, but are the most, and this is across evangelicals. I'm not speaking about this church, I'm speaking about the church, the big church the pastors the most underappreciated underloved undervalued underfunded and overburdened people that i've ever met and i know that's a strange thing for me to say cuz i'm a pastor you like know, what's he talking about what's he really getting at here i'm saying these things because the scripture says these things a pastor is called to love you even when he doesn't feel loved A pastor is called to be gracious even when people have not been gracious. A pastor doesn't have a stress card that he can pull. A pastor doesn't have a mental health day. A pastor can't call in sick when the sermon has to be delivered and there's no one else to give it. He must give Jesus' people Jesus' word because he will stand before the living God on what he does. But I would be a fool to say to you that every day is sunshine and roses in ministry. Roses have thorns and they hurt. The role is heavy. There are days when a pastor will wake up almost in tears. If you remember the the faithful pastor, Charles Spurgeon, there were days he couldn't get out of the bed because of his depression. He was honest enough to admit that. There was a moment in Charles Spurgeon's ministry where a fire happened in his church and the town blamed him for it and he carried that for 30 years. He would wake up and he would feel almost despondent and it would cause him to run to Christ. I've learned over the course of of time in ministry, which has not been forever, but I've learned that the Lord afflicts my heart most strongly when he wants me to run most ardently to him. Because I think about it, if my heart wasn't afflicted, would I run to him, would I cling to him? Pastors carry a massive burden. That's why I think the scriptures say that the congregation has got to love, appreciate, and care for their pastors. Whether you go here or whether you go to another church or whether you you go to, you move out of state, whatever, I'm, I'm pleading in a sense with you, not because it affects me. I'm, I'm saying because the scripture says this, to love and care for your ministers because it's a heavy role. Look at what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.25, a short verse. He says, brethren, pray for us. I appreciate the brevity of that statement. He could go on. Paul, Paul can go on. In the original Greek, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 8 is a sentence. That's one sentence. Paul can go on. But here, with great brevity, he says, brethren, pray for us. It's one of the best things you could possibly do for us is just pray for us. Paul knows that ministry is bigger than any man can carry. Like I told you earlier, we're the fools of this world. Ministry is bigger than us. If we don't have Christ above all else, the Spirit interceding us for us constantly, the love and support of a community and people who are praying for us, we're, da- we're, we're in danger Don't idolize your pastor. Whether it's this church or another church, don't. There is nothing special about being a pastor, and there's nothing special about your pastor. Life is not a video game, and I'm not on a different level. I need prayer. Derek needs prayer. Our future deacons and elders need prayer for our family, for our marriage, for our holiness, for our children, for our personal time with Jesus for wisdom, discernment, resilience, would you pray that there'd be a day where I don't give up and say, this is too hard, I'm moving to Wyoming. <laughs> These are areas where the church can be faithful citizens in the kingdom and just loving, caring, and praying. I had, in my first sermon that I ever preached, this is an example. Um, It's funny, but there's a point. In the first example, the first sermon I ever preached, a guy came up to me and said, that was really great, but next time, maybe maybe try to cry a little bit so that we actually know that you care. That was exactly how he said it. I'm not even embellishing. And I was like, thank you. Maybe a, I went home and looked up computer programming degrees. (laughs) These tasks are heavy. We need your love, support, and your prayer. Pastors also need financial support in order to keep doing the work. I know we're, we're a church that doesn't talk about finances often, so the fact that we've talked about it two weeks in a row is interesting to me. We have adopted sort of a George Mueller approach to finances that God has got the cattle on a thousand hills and we don't need to beg and manipulate people to give. God will bring us what we need. But the Bible does talk about giving. The Bible talks about it a lot, actually, and it talks about how the burden of ministry is so important that it must be funded. That a pastor must be able to pay his bills. Now listen, I despise with a pure and perfect hatred Instagram channels like Preachers and Sneakers, where pastors have $1,000 dubs. That's ridiculous. That's disgusting. Where a pastor's riding to church in a Lamborghini, or a Guinea, however you pronounce it, a pastor must receive a wage. He must be able to pay his bills, but he doesn't profit on the church. He doesn't abuse the church. He doesn't ride his jet like Creflo Dollar down in Georgia to go spread the gospel to the nations. No, he can do that on, in a Honda Civic or Corolla or whatever. You see, I know that we see these examples about pastors who are abusing churches and we, we scoff and we hate that and, and we should. But again, I've met more pastors who are on the poverty line than I have on pastors that are living large and abusing the church. I've met more pastors who have to work two jobs just to be able to financially support their family. I've met more pastors who are below the poverty line on state insurance because they can't afford to live. This is an expensive area of the country to live in. Amen. As a church, if we don't have a vision that involves financing the kingdom then the kingdom won't move forward here. There there could come a day where I can't pay my bills. I go get a second job. Finances continue to crumble and the church has to close down because of something silly like finances. We can't let the light of the gospel go out in New England because of money, especially when God owns everything. Ministry is too important. I believe that with all my heart. I believe this area is too important to let something like that cause us to shut our doors. A congregation can be involved in the life of a pastor by encouraging, loving, praying, supporting, and financing his ministry. Paul gives an example of this in 1 Corinthians 9 7 through 14. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat the fruit of it? Who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking of these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does the law not also say these same things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is treading or threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher ought to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share that, the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Paul's a great example of this. Paul was a tent maker. Paul worked tirelessly to get an income for himself so that he could serve. But at multiple points in his ministry, he thanks God for the gift that someone gave him so he didn't have to make tents. Paul's saying there's nothing wrong with making tents. The gospel has to go forward. But if we don't have to make tents and we can build Jesus' kingdom, that would be better. And to the Philippian church, he says, I praise God for you that you supplied my ministry. Nevertheless, we do not use this right, but we endure all things so that we cause no hindrance of the gospel. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? Those who attend regularly to the altar share from the altar? so that the Lord has directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. 1 Timothy 5, 17-18 says it as well. Elders who rule well and who are considered worthy of double honor shall get their wages from their labor. That's, he says the laborer is worthy of his wages. I share these things because ministry is a taxing thing. It is emotionally, spiritually, mentally draining, And if a pastor says that it's not, he just is not willing to admit it publicly. The congregation is integral in the health and life of the church in supporting and helping and praying and ministering. I mean, I know that I look like I've got things together, but every now and then a pat on the back and say, thank you so much. I I promise if it goes to my head, you can smack me across the head. (laughs) Sometimes we're so afraid to let things go to our heads that we don't actually encourage each other. And it isn't just me. We we don't encourage each other as much as we ought. This life's hard. That's why Jesus gave us a family. That's why Jesus gave us a body to help us bear the burden together. If we can't look out for each other, then you think the enemy is not going to exploit that and take advantage of that and, and cause all kinds of problems for us? The church is governed by men who've been set apart by the Holy Spirit of God, appointed by the congregation, given over to the elders, evaluated in their character, trained up in the ministry, ordained for service, and then the congregation reciprocates by coming alongside of them, loving, encouraging, praying, and supporting. And when all of that is done well, the church has a healthy government, and the church can thrive, and the gospel will go forward. And that's what I pray for us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that even down to the bones of what a church government looks like, you have given us truth. Lord, we thank you that on the cross you became our our king and you delivered us from slavery to sin and you have made us slaves to righteousness. And Lord, you have appointed under shepherds who are weak and who are broken and who need you in order to serve on a local level in your kingdom. And Lord, you've given congregations to support that work so that when the elders and the deacons and the congregations are working together, the missio day, the mission of God goes forward. Lord, if we want to see you move, if we want to see revival, Lord, let us not forget that it takes all of us doing our role the elders, the deacons, and the congregation. Lord, let us do that role to your glory, for your honor, to see your kingdom advance. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.